So I thought before we start thinking about what we're really going to talk about today, we start with an advert. And the thing about adverts is some people switch off, mentioning no names. <laughs> but some people just switch off or just go fast forward through the adverts. But this is an important, everybody does it, do they? Yeah, not like the old days when you had to sit through everything, weren't it? But the thing about this advert is it just reminds us what's going to happen in January and February, because we're going to look at eight different people that are significant people in the Bible, but we don't really hear much about them. We don't have many verses written about them. And so on our website is listed all these eight people, and soon it will be all the different passages that you'll see it as well. And it'll be a great thing, if you can, every week, just look at who's coming next um, on the uh, internet and just say, oh, right, I can read that passage and that will tell me a little bit about the person. It'll help you to ponder about them a little bit. So you can say it's like homework, if you like, but we won't say that, really. But it just helps you to get involved with what the speaker's thinking and what the talk's going to be about, so you can think about it a little bit more. Now, you wouldn't know, would you? But today is... Tomorrow is Christmas Eve, and today is... Today. today. Yeah, because Fiona was telling me earlier that if you say it's tomorrow... Surely you think, it's not tomorrow, it's today. So that confused me. But you know what I mean? Christmas is tomorrow. It's tomorrow. And so what we're thinking about is tomorrow, today. Are you with me? <laughs> and we're especially thinking about the responses to the different comings and goings from the different Christmas characters, we can call it. So we're going to read a little bit from John. John 1. 1 to 4, 14, and then 21 to 25. And that's what this says here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we've got the end of John as well. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. How exciting is that? The whole world wouldn't have room for all what Jesus did and what he continues to do, of course. Sometimes an unexpected event happens in our life and sometimes it's the unexpected things that tell us who we are. It tells us a lot about ourselves. Now, we're really familiar with the Christmas story today because we've heard it dozens of times over the sort of years that either we've been a Christian or when we were young, how we sort of listened to it at church or at school or something. We've all heard it dozens of times. But I want us to think, what was Christmas like, the first Christmas, for the people then? The things that happened wouldn't have been expected, would they? But we know, oh, this is what happened, and this is what happened, and this is what happened. And even carols that we sing has an influence in our thinking. But the first time that Christmas happened, what was it like? Who do we meet in the story? How do they react to what God is saying? 
Now, if you look online today or whatever day you like, you'll find out that the different people we're going to talk about look very nice. I've, I've picked a nice font and downloaded it, and it's like Christmas tree lights, all the different names. When I came on Thursday and put it in the laptop, it looked a load of rubbish. So I changed all of that. And so instead of having Christmas tree lights as the names, you've got things like that. All right. So it's all right. You can, you can read it. That's the important thing. But if you look online at my notes, you'll see they're like Christmas tree lights. And you sort of think, oh, that's very pretty. So that's what I intended, to have pretty names and not just normal names. But it didn't quite work. Now, if you were, well, not if you were younger, when you were younger at school and there was a nativity play, I bet you didn't want to be the donkey. And your parents especially didn't want you to be the donkey or anything like that. Who did they want you to be? Mary and Joseph. Because they've got the starring roles, haven't they? They've got the roles where everyone wants to be them because they're central characters. Now, we're going to be thinking about those first, of course. So how did they react on the first Christmas? Just go back in your TARDIS. It's a very special day tomorrow for our TARDIS, if you're a fan. Just go back in your TARDIS and just think, what was like, life like on that first Christmas? Think about it like that. Don't think about all the times that you've read it. Just imagine what's happening to them. Now, there's two Gospels, you might remember, that tell us about the Christmas story, give us details about Jesus' birth. In Matthew, we hear about things from Joseph's, Joseph's perspective. That's the word, isn't it? Joseph's perspective. And in Luke, we hear mostly about what Mary was thinking and how she saw things. And Matthew doesn't actually talk about the birth. He kind of talks about what happened just after the birth, a year or two after maybe. But what he does do is he often points back to the Old Testament. And so if you look at verses like Matthew 1.22... He was sort of saying, oh yeah, this is what happened because this was what was written. People call it a fulfilment formula. So if you hear that phrase, it's, and you hear it a lot in Matthew, you can think, oh yeah, Matthew's written it because he's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what the Old Testament said. This is what Jesus did to prove it was going to happen and, and just to prove what happened there. Mary's a young teenager. And we know what young teenagers are like, don't we? We're sort of, uh, and maybe they're exactly the same then. I remember when I was a young teenager, I can still remember that far. And the thing was, you were kind of, life was great, but sometimes it wasn't great. And sometimes it was wonderful, you know, it was like ups and downs. And I'm sure in that time for Mary, she had her ups and downs, didn't, we? didn't she? Because everybody does. But she was engaged to a nice bloke called Joseph, and he was from a good family. But strange things had happened in Mary's family very recently. She had a cousin, you probably know. Her cousin was called Elizabeth, but she was kind of an older lady, and she was barren. She hadn't had any children, and suddenly, unexpectedly, she was pregnant. Her husband, his name was Zechariah, uh, he became mute, and for a while, of course, because he was mute, he couldn't speak. What a strange thing to happen in the family. All of this was happened to Mary's family. She, uh, Elizabeth became pregnant, and her husband just stopped speaking after he'd been in the temple and worshipping God and taking the sacrifices and things. Mary was in a bit of a dilemma. 
because she had a visit. Tells us about it in Luke, as we say. Luke chapter 1. And Luke chapter 1, verse 29, says she was greatly troubled. Now, perhaps like me, sometimes you think, oh, I want to read lots of English versions and just see what they say about it. But sometimes I think, nah, I don't want to go for the English. Let's go for the Greek. That's sort of where the action's at, isn't it? So, so I've been looking at different words, just perhaps like you do sometimes as well. And it's brilliant, some really good words today. You're going to hear a few. And the word that we're going to think about is a really strong word. Diatarosso. I can see you're looking so, so at me, like you're just thinking, yeah, I'm right with you, John. That is such a great word. Because Taroso, we're going to sort of look at that in a, a few minutes with another character that we're going to sort of meet. But it's like agitated, going backwards and forwards and just thinking, oh no, oh dear, what's going to happen? That's Taroso, sort of just really agitated, going backwards and forwards, just beside themselves. But dear is even more extreme. It's a prefix in Greek, and it means through and through, to an extreme. So, Mary wasn't just, oh, what's going to happen? But she was really, oh my goodness, oh goodness gracious. She was really like this. She was greatly troubled, the NIV says. But that doesn't really go for it with me. She was was all at sea. She was in a tizwas. She was comings and goings. She didn't know what was going on. Because an angel had met with her. I've never met an angel, I think. But what would it be like if suddenly you were minding your own business and an angel came in front of you and spoke things about what God was saying? Would you be dear Tarasso? Yeah, we'd be extremely troubled and agitated and wondering, Lord, what's going on? I come from a good family. I've heard people talk about you but from hundreds of years ago. And now, God, you've sent an angel to come talk to me. Wow. Oh, to get the picture. Oh. But the thing is, just later, in verse 18, she says something really amazing. This is what it says in the Living Bible. I am the Lord's servant, and I am willing to do whatever he wants. May everything you said come true. So it was a traumatic experience meeting the angel, but she gave a great response to God. I might be all at sea, shaking with fear and wondering what's going on, not having the answers. We have the answers because we know what's going to happen and we know it all turns out brilliantly and God had a plan. But Mary was in a tizwas. Mary was going to and fro, wondering what's going on not just because of her family, what had happened to Elizabeth and to her husband, but what had happened to her. And so Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, and he just thought, well, okay, I'm not going to make a show of her. I'll just quietly divorce her, and I'll take the guilt on myself. It'll be okay. But God had a plan, and Joseph knew, because he had a dream about an angel coming to him. So Mary had an actual angel come and sort of talk face to face with her, but Joseph had a dream, and he just knew that God had ordained this to happen. So his response was good as well. 
the angels. Now, I'm a curious person. You probably all know that. But I just, I don't look at what's there. I like to look between the lines, and I like to look back and forward and sideways. How did the angels feel when they knew they were going to announce something momentous, something brilliant, something unexplained in a way, that they were going to sort of tell the shepherds and the world that Jesus is coming, that Jesus has been born. I wonder who wrote the song. We said it right at the beginning, didn't we? Or I said it, rather. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. I wonder who wrote that. I wonder how long they practised for. I wonder, did they sing in unison? Or did they sing in ten-part harmony? Can you imagine them? Were they singing like a barbershop quartet? Is that how the angels sang, glory to God? Or did they sing more like Bach? You know, what was it like? What a pity that they didn't record it. Because the angels still had their technology then, didn't they? They, they could have recorded it quite easily. But, uh, but yeah, we don't know what they sang like. But I'd love to have been there. What was it like? How did they sing it? They must have been so joyful and happy and stuff. But the interesting thing is, I've written lots of things down about it, and so they were excited and they were declaring good news, weren't they? More about the angels in a few moments. How about the shepherds? Now, the shepherds were despised, weren't they? That's what went with their territory. That was their job. They were just like... The down and outs. And even though they were really busy, because probably Jesus was born in the springtime, and so there were lambs being born and all this sort of stuff, so they were really busy looking after the sheep, looking after the lambs, out in the fields overnight and in the daytime. But when the angels come, they dropped everything. They might have left one person in charge. Oh, what a pity for that bloke, not sort of going to see <laughs> Jesus. But like the rest of them just went, yes, and just sort of scarpered off to the manger and to the stable because they knew where they were going. But Mary had one angel, and Joseph dreamt about one angel coming. But the shepherds have a lot of angels. And I've been wondering about this this week because when you read it, he sort of says, one angel came and sort of said, blah, 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 you're going to see this, you're going to be that because God's great. But I think this was a photobomb opportunity. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes when people... Okay, I do this sometimes. When there's a crowd sort of having their photo taken, I just go to the back of it and smile. (laughs) I do. But the thing is, I think... This is what happened with the angels. I've not read about it in any commentaries or anything, but I can just imagine that I was saying earlier that they must have practised it. I don't think they did. I think it was impromptu. I think one angel was planned to go to the shepherds. But then there was all these thousands of angels wanting to get in on the act because they were, yes, yes, they were really happy about it. And they were saying, marvellous, I just want to be there as well. So I don't think it was an organised thing. I think this myriad, this great company of angels went because they couldn't stop themselves from going. They couldn't stop themselves from being with the shepherds, declaring all the good news because it was so brilliant. What do you think? 
yeah, I think that's true. And uh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be busy worshipping Jesus. But after a few thousand years, I'll still be busy worshipping Jesus. But maybe after a few million years, I'll still be busy worshipping Jesus. But I might want to ask the shepherds, do you think that was planned? Was one angel meant to come, and then a whole crowd of them come? By the way, here's another Greek word. Plethos. This is Greek for, like, great company, a multitude, a myriad. And plethos is from the Greek word pletho, which means to be full. So I've got my imagination going, thinking the whole sky was full of angels. Can you imagine that? It wasn't just one angel that came, and that was it. But then the whole sky, the whole vista, is that a word? It is. The whole place where you could see was full of angels singing, glory to God in the highest heaven. I wonder what sound they make. How loud was that? We can be enthusiastic when we can sing and worship God, can't we? They'll be beside themselves with happiness and joyfulness and all those other words. You know what I mean? They were, weren't they? Because something amazing had happened. So, yeah, I think the whole sky, so a great company, I think that's a bit of a, it's not very good, really. I think, use my imagination, thousands and thousands of angels were there because plethos is from pletho, which means to be full. So I think the whole sky was full of angels praising God and saying, yay, great glory to God in the highest. I can imagine that. Yeah, I get excited. Suddenly, I think this is what happened. So this is the word that made me think this because one angel went and then suddenly, that's what the, the verse 13 says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts. So that's why I think it's because of the word suddenly. So one angel went, and then suddenly the sky was full of angels praising God and just improvising great many things. So the shepherds dropped everything. I think if I'd have seen all those angels, I'd have not dropped everything. I'd have fallen to the floor and just gone, whoa, all this like, we look at fireworks, don't we, sometimes? just thinking off the cuff. We, thought, we look at fireworks and go, ooh, and ah, oh, oh, that was brilliant. But see the angels, real angels. It's not like in a film where they're pretend angels, but these were real angels, praising God and giving everything they've got. I think the shepherds gave a good response to what was going on. The wise men, in inverted commas. Again, carols have got a lot to answer for, haven't they? We three kings of Orient are... Were they kings? Wise men? Were they astrologers, astronomers, priests? Matty uses the word magi. And so that's how we get the word, because he used that word in the Greek. But how many were there? I don't think there were three. There were three gifts that they brought. But some people think, reading some commentaries, that were several dozen that went. And so you've, in the stable, they'd all been like sardines, or it's my turn to sort of go and praise God, and, and well, in the, t- in the house where it was, because this was a little bit later after Jesus was born. 
But we do know they came from the east. And most people think that means Mesopotamia. So that's like Iraq, isn't it? So they came from Iraq. So that was a, an arduous journey by camel or by horse. And so maybe there were several dozen of these magi. And then they would have had an entourage with them as well. They wouldn't have come on their own. So there might have been several hundred people all going through the desert and over rivers and over the mountains on their camels and things like that. And they'd be sort of saying, oh, yeah, we've come to follow God, to search out God. Now, interesting, because if they were from Iraq, Mesopotamia, they weren't Israelites. They weren't from the family of God. And yet God included them in the Christmas story which is brilliant because we, as God's family, can say, yes, we're going to celebrate tomorrow because we know the real meaning of Christmas. And so in many ways, I think other people, pagans, if you like, or non-Christians, if you like, or whatever you want to call them, celebrating Christmas, they might not know the real meaning, but it's a great thing because they're actually coming together and they might not think about Jesus totally, but at least there's some awareness going on for some of them, that what Christmas is about is Jesus. And so I think other people celebrating Christmas is a great thing, wonderful. And God spoke to them. He said, come on, follow that star. Something important is going to happen. And it can be our prayer that people who don't know God can be led by God to follow him, to come and talk to us, to come and read the Bible, to see something going on supernatural because that's the way God can work. The wisdom in their heads made them go for that long search. But I think it's the emptiness in their hearts that made them carry on right to the end. So their heads told them something's going to happen here. And they might have given up after a few days of travelling. But even though they were wise men, Something was missing in their hearts and they knew they had to keep on going. They had to follow this star to find the king of the Jews. In Matthew 2, verse 11, they bowed, worshipped and gave gifts. And maybe when you look at Greek words, you might know this word proskunio. And that's the Greek word here for worshipped. And it means to kiss towards. And in Mesopotamian, you can imagine that what they did was knelt down, and in reverence, they'd have put their head, their forehead, on the ground, in reverence, just to a baby. So they didn't just sort of go in and say, there's Jesus, oh great, we found him, there we go. But they worshipped him, they put their forehead on the ground, and then they gave him all these free gifts. Remember, there might have been dozens and dozens of people just in the entourage, let alone the Magi themselves, and they gave them three brilliant gifts. Maybe you've heard people talk about those before. They journeyed a long way. And so they were probably tired. But they worshipped God with all their hearts. They didn't just stay in the nearest Premier Inn or something the night before. And then they went and worshipped God with full sort of vigour and full energy. But even though they were tired, they went and said, yeah, you are the king and we worship you. And that was despite being in God's family. How about King Herod? He's another person in this story. 
How did he respond? Well, mathematically, he shouldn't have seen baby Jesus because we think he died in 4 BC. That's pretty amazing, isn't it, that he died four years before Jesus was born, and yet he was the king of Judea at the time. But, of course, there's some Catholic monk, I've forgotten his name, you'll tell me later, I'm sure, that about a 1,000 years ago decided all the different years and worked out when Jesus was born and all of that. And so he kind of got it wrong by a few years. So that's why Jesus probably wasn't born in 0 AD, but he was born 5, 6 BC, something like that. He was called Herod the Great, but his character wasn't great. He wasn't a nice person. He was a fragile king, wasn't he? He was afraid of being usurped. He killed members of his family. And when uh, the Magi came to him, he thought, oh no, here's another king. As well as, like, can you imagine if you're a bit of a, a, a sort of a king who wasn't so king-like and you were very afraid of being usurped and being threatened by other people. When these maybe dozen foreign people from the east came along with a large entourage on their camels and their horses and had gifts with them, how did he feel? I'll tell you. Do you remember that word, diatasaro, from Mary? Well, he didn't have the dia word, dia prefix, but he had the tarasso. And so this is a better definition of that Greek word. It means to put in motion, to agitate back and forth, to shake to and fro, figuratively, to set in motion what needs to remain still, to trouble, agitate, causing inner perplexity, emotional agitation, from getting too stirred up inside. So that's what the Greek word means. And remember, Mary really had it, sort of really going, oh, what's going to happen? But Herod was like it as well. He was thinking, oh no, there's another king being born. What's going to happen? And so that's why he wanted the uh, Magi to tell him where he was. Not so he could go and worship him, we know that. But so he could go and kill Jesus. And how angry would he have been when he found out that they'd gone home another way and they hadn't told him. That's why he murdered quite a few children, two years old and, and, un, and under. He gave a terrible response. With God, it's impossible not to give a response to what he does and what he says. But this is the greatest part, isn't it, of the story. We've not talked about him at all. The carol service last week, Shirley Mary read out from Philippians 2 about how Jesus came to earth. He chose to come to earth. All these other people, they would have been surprised at what was happening. But baby Jesus, he knew exactly what was happening. He knew why he'd come. And he came, we know, to do, make a difference in our lives, to save humanity, because we couldn't save ourselves. How do we meet? How do we react when we meet with the risen and ascended Jesus? We're thinking about baby Jesus over Christmas. Jesus isn't a baby anymore. Remember, Jesus, or any baby really, when you have a baby, they're totally dependent on adults. 
and all the people around them. I could get on the floor. I'm not going to go, ah, ah, I need some food, I need some changing, I need this, I need that. And you get to hear what the baby means. But they're totally dependent on adults. I wonder, do we treat the risen and ascended Jesus like he needs us more than we need him? How do we respond to Jesus? Two weeks ago, Andy reminded us something brilliant. He reminded us that Jesus isn't a baby. He reminded us, and that would be great if Jesus was a baby, but he's not anymore. He told us that Jesus isn't around physically walking the earth anymore. He reminded us that Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. But what he said was, and I'll show you a photo I did, but it's a bit sort of cheesy. But Jesus is wearing his crown. And he's sat on the throne. Jesus is in charge. Jesus isn't a baby anymore. He's risen. He's exalted. And he's our Lord and Saviour. How do we respond? How do we react when we, the risen and ascended and exalted Lord speaks to us? When he comes in our quiet time to think, I love you, Jesus says to us. How do we respond? Two fairly important things happened to me this week. One of them I was fairly certain was going to happen, and I had a date for it. And the other thing, I thought, oh, that's probably going to happen about December. So, here I am, celebrating my birthday. Yay! Lots of fun in different places, all very nice. So I had a great time. But there's something else this week that I've been really looking forward to. And you're going to think, when I show you the next slide, why on earth would you be looking forward to that? And that's because my car did 90,000 miles. <laughs> and every 10,000 miles, I look at it and think, hey, hey, it's coming, soon be a round number. I love round numbers on my odometer. Do you ever think about it, or am I just a bit different to you? Yeah, oh, me and Jill, we're like this, we're great. <laughs> but, but maybe you don't think about it, but to me, I knew it was coming sometime this year, that I'd have 90,000 miles on my car. And I was looking forward to it. And even if I hadn't shown you the picture, I was going to take a photo for my own self because I think it's lovely <laughs> my car's done 90,000 miles. I knew it was going to happen sometime this year, near the end of the year. And I was fairly certain that I was going to have my birthday. But I wasn't certain, totally. Now, good things can happen unexpectedly, can't they? And sometimes... Good things, like I've been saying, happen, and you know kind of roughly when it's going to happen. But equally bad things can happen, and you know they're going to happen. And it's our life that we have to lead and say, Lord, I submit to you. Whatever's going on, I want to follow you and know you. 
there's going to be many definite and brilliant things for all of us in this coming year. Maybe some of us will have tragic days as well. And we can all share that and come next to each other and help each other, can't we? But these definite things that we can do remind me of phone calls or emails I often get at the beginning of, a, of the year in January. People say to me, oh, Mr. Stevenson, I'd like to learn to play the piano, please. How long will it take me to play the, learn how to play the piano really well? And so what I say to them, well, what I used to say to them, I've been playing it for 40 years and I'm still learning. I've learned not to say that anymore because that kind of puts people off because <laughs> I am still learning as a pianist and as a teacher and everything, but people don't want to hear that to learn a skill takes 40 years because they don't want to hear that, do they? So usually I say to them, oh, give it a few months of proper, uh, proper study and you'll be fine. So in my mind, I sort of say this to them. I sort of say, well, if you're going to become increasingly proficient, you've got to set aside a regular time. You've got to practice with a purpose. You've got to know how to practice. You've got to know what you're practicing it, doing it properly. I'll tell them all this in the lesson as well. Uh, you've got to gain uh, theoretical knowledge. And it's nice if you share what you're doing with other people. Maybe you're Auntie Beryl or you sort of someone that, who you know, that you just know. And you'll get to be a good musician if you do all these things. But it will take time and you've got to decide to do it. And then this week, it suddenly came across my mind again that as Christians, as Jesus' disciples, we can't just let it happen. We've got to be proactive in being a disciple. So I changed that to this. We've got to set aside a regular time if we're following God. We've got to seek and crave God's ways. We've got to turn from our own ways. And we've got to keep watching, praying and seeking. Our response to God this coming year has got to be one of surrender. We have got to obey God. I base that really on a verse probably everybody knows. And I've written it down on the screen that's coming up next in five different versions. So I'm going to read 2 Chronicles 7.14 in five different versions. This is the Amplified. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves, pray, seek, crave, and require of necessity my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. If I ever shut up, this is from the message, off the supply of rain from the skies, or order the locusts to eat the crops, or send a plague on my people, and my people, my God-defined people, respond by humbling themselves, praying, seeking my presence, and turning their backs on their wicked lives. I'll be there ready for you. I'll listen from heaven, forgive their sins, and restore their land to health. New English translation. If my people who belong to me humble themselves, pray, seek to please me, and repudiate their sinful practices, then I will respond from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. New Living Version. If my people who are called by my name put away their pride and pray and look for my face and turn from their sinful ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. The Voice. And my people who are known by my name humbly pray, follow my commandments and abandon any actions or thoughts that might lead to further sinning, 
Then I shall hear their prayers for my house in heaven. I shall forgive their sins and I shall save their land from the disasters. This is really implying that we are living wicked lives. That verse implies that we are not following God wholeheartedly. That we live sinful lives, maybe now and again. But I know in my life, I don't put God first every single minute, every single hour. Sometimes I have a lot of John time. And that's not always healthy or good. We have a calling to follow God with everything that we have. Now, I do know that for all of us, we can look to the future and say, I don't know what it's going to hold, but we can be deliberate in following God. We can make that happen. We can say, God, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know, Lord, you're with me, and you desire everything that I have. So following God, we need to seek and crave him. We need to follow him totally. This is the uh, front page, or part of the front page, of the next onward. Happy 2018, happy new year. And that looks all pretty good, doesn't it? But you might sort of think that the bottom of it, which I'm going to show you, doesn't really fit in with that. This is what the bottom bit says. It's from Isaiah 43. So I've had the Happy New Year 2018. But then on the front of the newsletter it says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I'll be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. And you might think, well, how can those two be put together. Happy, happy, happy. But they seem diametrically opposed, don't they? And yet we know that some of us, maybe all of us, will either have really bad days ahead or bad days ahead, terrible days ahead. But we know that is God's promise. He is with us. He loves us. He is sovereign. And next year can be a year of significance for us individually and collectively, but it's up to us to follow God. How do we react when we meet with the risen and ascended Jesus? Jesus is here now. We can worship him. We can respond today as we pray together and praise together. We can respond a lot over the next 40 minutes, remembering that Jesus isn't the baby anymore, and all those people that we met in the Christmas story, they responded to baby Jesus. Today, God isn't calling us to respond to baby Jesus anymore. God says, respond to me. I'm lifted up. I'm exalted. Look to me and follow me. How can we respond to God? What can I give him? poor as I am. If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. 
Yet what I can I give him. I give my heart. And that's what all of us can do today. That's our gift back to baby Jesus, to the exalted Lord, saying, here's my heart, here's my emotions, here's everything I have. I'm giving it to you. So we're going to pray and then we'll respond. Just sort of quietly or maybe noisily, we'll see how we feel but we'll respond together. So Lord, we do thank you for the story of Christmas. And as we try and put ourselves into that story, imagining it for the first time, we are just lost in wonder that so many things like that would happen and that you were with the people, even when they were kind of shocked and perplexed and wondering what was going on. Thank you, Lord, that you are still with us today. You are with us still. And just like that hymn writer, hymn writer wrote, Lord, what we have, we give you today. And that's our hearts, our plans, everything we're wondering about for the future, our lives, our relationships, our hopes for relationships this coming year. We give them to you, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that you can take us and you take our offering, our sacrifice, and see that it is good. Amen.